On October 27, 1868, the city of Little Rock, Arkansas was eerily quiet. The government was not in session, nor were local businesses open to customers. Instead, the residents observed a day of mourning in honor of a fallen hero, 34-year-old lawyer, politician, and civil rights advocate James M. Hines. Many gathered for the large funeral procession, including officials from the city, county, state, and federal governments. Members of the police, military, and countless other citizens, 50 carriages strong, were present. U.S. Representative Logan H. Roots later described it to the House. Could you, sirs, have seen the hundreds of compressed lips and wet eyes which spoke in an eloquence and intensity of grief. Words could not be framed to utter when his remains passed through the city of Little Rock. Before Hines' body was loaded onto a train car bound for New York, his exquisite metallic coffin was presented for public viewing in the hall between the Senate and the House of Representatives. But while thousands of people paid their respects, his killer was still at large. One death can change the world. At least that's what assassins believe. Welcome to Assassinations, a ParCast original. Every Monday, we examine the famous assassins of history and the men and women who were assassinated. I'm your host, Bill Thomas. And I'm your host, Kate Leonard. You can find episodes of Assassinations and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Assassinations for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Assassinations in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our second episode on James Hines, the first congressman ever assassinated. Last week, we examined the origins of the Ku Klux Klan, James Hines' career and accomplishments, and the circumstances surrounding his assassination in 1868. This week, we'll discuss the aftermath of the murder. Hines' death spurred further division between the two major political parties, and the effects are felt even to this day. Only a few days before his death, 34-year-old U.S. Representative James Hines wrote the following in a letter. We must win the election, stand a fight, or leave the state. And it is sad to think that many of our number, perhaps myself included, must be murdered before seeing the Ides of November to know whether we win, fight, or leave. His words proved prescient. On October 22, 1868, Hines was on his way to a speaking engagement at the Lambert Plantation with fellow Republican radical Joseph Brooks. Both men were campaigning for presidential candidate Ulysses S. Grant. Along the way, they were accosted by George W. Clark, 
an active member of the notorious Ku Klux Klan. Hines, who spent years advocating for citizenship and voting rights for black Americans, was a prime target of the white supremacist group. That day, Clark lashed out in violence, shooting both men. After Clark fired, he fled. While Hines bled in the road, Brooks managed to ride on ahead to find help. But by the time a doctor reached Hines, he was too far gone. He succumbed to his wounds before he could be admitted to a hospital. After Hines was declared dead, the local sheriff sent a telegram to Arkansas Governor Powell Clayton to share the unsettling news. In turn, Clayton sent word to Hines' wife, Anna. Meanwhile, the state was tasked with bringing Hines' killer to justice. On October 23, 1868, 17 men from Monroe County convened for an investigation. Both Republicans and Democrats agreed that Hines was murdered by George W. Clark. Hines' friend, George W. McDermott, sent a telegram to Hines' brother, stating, Probably no man in the state had greater influence than James Hines. Certainly, we have not another such efficient organizer. Consequently, the rebels made him a prominent subject for assassination. But the local newspaper believed Hines' death was the result of a conspiracy. The Arkansas Gazette published an editorial accusing the Republican Party of trying to make him a martyr, a cause to rally behind in the upcoming contentious elections. Most people rejected these outlandish claims. The evidence clearly suggested that Hines was just one of several Republicans who had been targeted for violence by the KKK. And though a warrant was issued for George Clark, the killer was never heard from again. It was reported that he fled the country, even leaving his family behind. Officials couldn't pin the murder on the KKK's leadership either. Individual members had leeway to commit violent acts in the Klan's name without any official directive. It was virtually impossible to prove that Clark's Grand Dragon had ordered Hines' death. In fact, members of George Clark's realm not only had plausible deniability, they may have genuinely had no idea about his planned murder. After Clark disappeared, investigators were left with no additional suspects. While the case was underway, Hines' family attended numerous funerals and memorial services. On October 27, 1868, the city of Little Rock hosted a massive funeral procession. Many local businesses and government offices were closed for the day so that employees could pay their respects. Following the procession, Hines' casket was presented for public viewing in the Capitol building. It was one of the largest funeral processions in Arkansas to date, taking over an hour to pass by. Although Hines was dead, his life's work wasn't in vain. On November 3, 1868, his candidate of choice, Republican nominee Ulysses S. Grant, was elected the 18th president of the United States. At 46 years old, Grant was the youngest president to be elected at the time. He had no prior experience in politics, 
but a mountain of clout after leading the Union Army to victory in the Civil War. His success at the polls was due in part to his support from black voters. In his final years, James Hines worked to pass legislation in favor of black enfranchisement. In turn, Grant focused his legislative efforts on furthering the cause of racial equality. Grant's victory motivated other officials to push for black rights. This meant not only passing new laws, but also striking back against organized hate movements. In November of 1868, in response to the Ku Klux Klan's rampant, politically motivated violence, Governor Clayton declared martial law in 10 Arkansas counties. Thanks to this strategy, the presence and activity of the KKK greatly diminished by the early months of 1869. But it was a momentary reduction. James Hines was the first congressman ever to be assassinated, and this distinction brought his killers, the Ku Klux Klan, to the national stage. Now, the hate group was determined that the show must go on. Up next, we'll discuss the KKK's short-lived decline and lamentable resurgence. Now, back to the story. In 1868, 34-year-old Congressman James Hines was assassinated. His death proved to be a tremendous loss to the political community. His murder brought the Ku Klux Klan to the forefront of the national conversation, inciting even more widespread fear and violence. It also inspired a strong anti-white supremacist backlash from the U.S. government. Arkansas Governor Powell Clayton declared martial law, ensuring that for the first time since its founding, the KKK faced real legal repercussions for their crimes. In addition to government intervention, the Klan faced problems within itself in the aftermath of Hines' death. Thanks to its policy of allowing members to commit murders as they saw fit, many Klansmen settled personal scores under the guise of KKK-sanctioned hate crimes. Chapters turned on each other, leading to a brief but bloody intra-Klan war. Even more troublesome, people with no formal affiliation with the group were committing their own petty crimes in white hooded robes, diluting the organization's brand and courting further governmental scrutiny. In response to the out-of-control violence, the leader of the KKK, 47-year-old Grand Wizard Nathan Bedford Forrest, ordered the group's dissolution in January of 1869, four months after Hines' death. However, some theorize that this directive was actually a ruse so that the Klan could continue its reign of terror underground. For years, tensions between the KKK and civil rights activists continued to play out like a swinging pendulum. With each victory for equality came a retributive violent act or a regressive law. And each time the white supremacists seemed to make headway, social justice advocates pushed back with new policies. For example, in 1870, President Ulysses S. Grant ratified the 15th Amendment, which ensured that black men's right to vote was now part of the U.S. Constitution. The next year, Grant signed legislation that criminalized many activities of the Ku Klux Klan. As a result, hundreds of Klansmen were arrested. 
But these victories were short-lived as the pendulum continued to swing. In 1872, the Republican Party in Arkansas split into two factions, the Brindletails and the Minstrels. The Brindletails were led by carpetbagger Joseph Brooks, Hines' speaking partner, who was also attacked by George W. Clark. Despite their carpetbagger leader, Brindletails were primarily native Southerners who believed in more local government intervention to advance racial equality. The minstrels, led by scalawag Alicia Baxter, were more moderate than the Brindletails and were generally comprised of carpetbaggers from the North. They were frequently accused of corruption thanks to their willingness to cross the aisle and collaborate with Democrats. As Baxter and Brooks sought the Arkansas governorship, their rivalry escalated into an armed conflict known as the Brooks-Baxter War. During April and May of 1874, violence permeated throughout Little Rock and out into most parts of the state. When Baxter won the vote, Brooks refused to accept the outcome. After several failed legal appeals, the Brindletails stormed the Capitol and confronted Baxter themselves. Both Brooks and Baxter had nearly 1,000 men on each side. By the end of the conflict, at least 200 had been killed. Baxter and the minstrels emerged victorious and reclaimed the governor's office on May 19, 1874. But in the next election cycle, the Democrats swept both the legislature and the governor's office. Because the minstrels and brindletails had split the Republican vote, they were unable to mount a successful campaign against the opposing party. With Southern Democrats now in control, the works of the Republican radicals were compromised. The new party championed poll taxes, literacy tests, and highly restrictive residency requirements before any citizen could participate in an election. These measures were explicitly designed to make voting difficult, bordering on impossible for black citizens. The Democrats even crafted grandfather clauses so that white voters could circumvent the labyrinthine stipulations. The 14th and 15th Amendments, which granted citizenship and voting rights to black people, were effectively nullified in practice, if not in name. As a result, the dreams of James Hines and other radical Republicans vanished, at least for a century. It also meant that white supremacist Democrats suddenly found themselves without an organized opponent. By the mid-1870s, the KKK's violence had slowed simply because their methods had been so effective. By keeping black voters away from the polls, Klansmen ensured that Democratic politicians continued to be elected and assassinating Republican leaders was no longer necessary. The political dominance of Democrats slowed the fight for equality on every front. In 1892, a black train passenger named Homer Plessy was arrested when he refused to sit in a black designated car. In the resulting case, Plessy v. Ferguson, the Supreme Court ruled that segregation was constitutional. This ultimately led to a practice known as Jim Crow, a system of segregation that maintained, quote, separate but equal facilities for black and white people. Black people were not permitted to live in the same neighborhoods, receive the same quality education, 
or even visit the same local businesses as their white counterparts. This period also introduced the lynching of black people by white mobs. But all too many white people were either blissfully unaware of the ongoing inequality or tacitly approved of it. Some even invented and disseminated counter-narratives to justify white supremacy. On February 8, 1915, D.W. Griffith's The Birth of a Nation premiered. It told the story of the Civil War and the Reconstruction, including the birth and rise of the Ku Klux Klan. However, it promoted the KKK's version of history, depicting the group in a positive light. Inspired by the film, in the fall of that year, a 35-year-old salesman named William J. Simmons decided to revive the Klan as an official organization. Simmons mostly wanted to make money from membership dues and was less invested in the merits of organized hate. In fact, records suggest that he may not have even had strong attitudes about race one way or the other. To drum up new fee-paying recruits, he commissioned the services of publicists Edward Young Clark and Elizabeth Tyler. They soon found that the best way to generate a response was to market their message as aggressively and as hatefully as possible. Thanks to their efforts, the reborn KKK proved even more bigoted than the original. The new organization took on a life of its own and soon morphed into what they called a pro-American group. However, their narrow definition of pro-American meant that the KKK was not only anti-Black, but anti-Jewish and anti-Catholic as well. Eventually, their targets included everyone from immigrants to bootleggers. By the summer of 1921, the Klan had recruited nearly 100,000 members and the violence was reignited. Those who could stop the mayhem, like police officers and government officials, either ignored it or secretly supported it. By 1924, experts estimate the KKK boasted two million members. Aggression against minorities soared. In response, a postal carrier named Victor Hugo Green published the Negro Motorist Green Book, also known simply as The Green Book, in 1936. It noted which restaurants, stores, and hotels were safe and welcoming for black travelers. Author Candace Taylor later founded The Green Book Project, which involved extensive research and visitation of Green Book sites in preparation for her book, Overground Railroad. Here, she talks about the importance of the Green Book, not only as a guide for travel, but also for survival. It was so much more than just a triple-A kind of for black people. It was really this life-saving companion on the road. In the introduction to the 1948 edition of the Green Book, the authors wrote, there will be a day sometime in the near future when this guide will not have to be published. That is when we as a race will have equal opportunities and privileges in the United States. It will be a great day for us to suspend this publication, for then we can go wherever we please and without embarrassment. That day seemed within reach in 1954. The Supreme Court ruled in Brown v. Board of Education to reproach the 
quote, separate but equal system and integrate public schools. The civil rights movement took another step forward on December 1, 1955, when Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat to a white passenger on a segregated bus in Montgomery, Alabama. Despite the bus driver's demands, Parks remained seated and said, I don't think I should have to stand up. The driver called the police and Parks was arrested at the scene. She was found guilty of violating a local ordinance and fined $10, but her trial and the subsequent protests within the black community led to the Montgomery bus boycott. The 381-day boycott propelled the Supreme Court to declare that public transit segregation was unconstitutional. The following month, the Birmingham KKK was reinvigorated. They retaliated against the bus boycott's success by bombing the home of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr one of the most recognizable faces of the movement. His advocacy made him a target, not unlike James Hines before him. Here, history was repeating itself. Whenever black Americans suffered setbacks, the KKK was satisfied and retreated. But as soon as equality activists made any real progress, the Klan reared its dragon-shaped head again. Members of the Klan had terrorized equal rights supporters for years, but their thirst for revenge wouldn't be quenched until they committed murder. They selected what they considered to be an ideal victim, a black truck driver who was rumored to have made an inappropriate remark to a white woman. On January 23, 1957, Klan members stalked the driver's route until they identified his truck parked outside a grocery store. The would-be killers approached the front seat, guns drawn. But when they caught the driver's attention, they found a different man, Willie Edwards Jr. Their intended target had called out sick, and his replacement, Willie, found himself in the wrong place at the wrong time. But the KKK had never been particularly picky about their victims and the assassins figured that any black truck driver would serve their purposes. After being tortured, Edwards was forced at gunpoint to jump off a bridge into the Alabama River to his death. The next year, an automobile plant worker from Atlanta established a violent sect called the U.S. Klans, Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. This faction of the larger KKK boasted as many as 15,000 members. Robert M. Shelton, an Alabama salesman, founded another sect of the KKK called the United Clans of America the following year, which continued the same policies of terror and intimidation. By 1965, the Ku Klux Klan was again organized throughout the South and its membership included an estimated 35 to 50,000 people. A century after James Hines' death, the KKK's reign of terror had only grown exponentially worse. Without that initial spark of violence, history might have been unimaginably different. Up next, we'll speculate on what might have transpired if James Hines' life had not been tragically cut short. Now, back to the story. Congressman James Hines' murder in October 1868 was the precursor to over a century 
of the Ku Klux Klan's deadly attacks. This racial conflict culminated during the 1960s civil rights movement, as the KKK targeted leaders by attacking their homes and churches. Freedom riders, who rode buses across the South to protest inequality, were also targeted for harassment and violence. In the latter months of 1965, President Lyndon B. Johnson tapped FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover to infiltrate the Klan the same way he'd earlier pursued the Communists. Hoover assembled 200 agents in an operation known as COINTELPRO, White Hate. COINTELPRO stands for Counterintelligence Program. To convince Klansmen to snitch, the FBI reportedly offered cash bribes, recruiting hundreds of informants, at least 6% of the Klan's membership, including some at the top of the organization. Spurred by the FBI's findings, President Johnson ordered a congressional probe of the Klan in 1966. Seven of its leaders, including United Clans of America founder and leader Robert Shelton, were arraigned. According to Shelton, the FBI's program and the subsequent imprisonment weakened the KKK for as long as a decade. But even these efforts couldn't stop the group forever. The Ku Klux Klan had left an indelible mark on American society, especially in the South. And racially charged violence has remained at the forefront of our collective conscious. Trayvon Martin, Eric Garner, Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, Freddie Gray. Their tragic stories and others like them inspired the 2013 formation of Black Lives Matter, an organization that attempts to raise awareness of and oppose violence perpetrated against black communities. More than 150 years after James Hines' death, the fight for racial equality is still ongoing. But what if George W. Clark had not succeeded in this assassination? What if Hines had survived after all? How would the fight for racial equality have played out differently? When they murdered James Hines, the Ku Klux Klan received attention and notoriety on a national scale for the first time. Previously, they were only the ghouls of the South. Even though the terror group effectively disbanded in early 1869, they had an eventual comeback at the turn of the 20th century and again during the 1950s and 60s. To this day, factions of the organization still exist. We don't promote hatred of anybody. We think everybody has a right to love their heritage and culture. But we're concerned with how come when white people say, I love my people, I love my heritage, they want to call that a racial hatred. Had Klansman Clark not killed Hines, the KKK may never have achieved such a boost to their presence, morale, and power. Perhaps the group would have been nothing more than a historical footnote. Hines could have also prevented the bloodshed of the Brooks-Baxter War of 1847 had he survived, given his close personal relationship with both men. This would have spared hundreds of lives. In addition, if Brooks and Baxter hadn't turned on one another, the Republican Party might have been able to present a more unified front through the 19th and 20th centuries. If the minstrels and brindletails hadn't split the vote, they may have continued to defeat Democrats in elections 
ensuring that literacy tests, poll taxes, and similar practices never became common. In turn, black voter turnout would have remained consistently high, further cementing Republican power throughout the South. Perhaps pro-equality congressmen could have even carried majorities or supermajorities for years, pushing through equal rights legislation for as long as it was needed. The long-term impacts would have been too far-reaching to fully analyze. Without Jim Crow laws, black citizens would have had access to better schools, better housing, better jobs. Much of the structural inequality that persists today could have been headed off within a generation of emancipation. As for the KKK, it might have never been revived in the early 20th century. Without the fame and notoriety they gained from James Hines' death, D.W. Griffith may not have chosen to feature the Klan so prominently in Birth of a Nation. Of course, the Ku Klux Klan is far from the only hate group to haunt the United States' history. It's possible that other similar organizations would have sprung up in its place. But maybe they would have struggled to recruit enough members to grow into a nationwide movement without the name recognition that the KKK enjoys. James Hines died just as Ulysses S. Grant was about to be elected president of the United States, taking the White House back for the Republican Party. Although Grant eventually passed legislation both in support of black rights and against the KKK, his efforts and those of other pro-equality politicians were often stymied. Without leaders like Hines, Congress didn't pass any pertinent laws for decades following Reconstruction. It wasn't until 1957 that the Commission on Civil Rights and the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department were established. Six years later, in June of 1963, President John F. Kennedy proposed new civil rights legislation. He proclaimed that the U.S. will not be fully free until all of its citizens are free. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 was ultimately signed into law by Kennedy's successor, President Lyndon B. Johnson. It ended segregation in public places as well as employment discrimination based on race. In his first State of the Union address, Johnson declared, let this session of Congress be known as the session which did more for civil rights than the last hundred sessions combined. During his lifetime, Hines' achievements contributed to great social advancements for black Americans everywhere. With more time, he surely would have continued to champion equality. Of course, there is still much work to be done. Who knows what tragedies could have been avoided had James Hines been given the chance to live. Thanks for listening to Assassinations. We'll be back Monday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Assassinations and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, 
But now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Assassinations, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Assassinations on Spotify, just open the app and type Assassinations in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Assassinations was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Andy Waits. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. This episode of Assassinations was written by Andrea Vasillo and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas.